Welcome to the Core Principles Podcast. Thank you for tuning in, and we hope you'll enjoy this lively discussion of relevant topics, which we attempt to examine through the lens of unchanging objective truth. Here's the host of the Core Principles Podcast, Clay Howerton. Thank you, Suzanne. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This was the beginning of the physical universe in which we live. The fact that there was a beginning to this physical universe is very important, and we will discuss why momentarily. That beginning is what scientists would refer to as T equals zero. But there was a time before the beginning of the physical universe. God is eternal. He's not bound by space or time as we understand it. The Gospel of John starts with this vital observation. In beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John's Gospel refers to a time different than what Moses wrote about in Genesis. There is no definite article in the reference to the beginning in the Gospel of John, but there is the definite article, the, in the creation account of Genesis. This may seem a small detail, but understanding it is important. God is eternal. He's completely unbound by time and space. He is everywhere at all times, everywhere at all times. And at some point in time, as we experience time, God created every part of the physical universe we inhabit. That point of time is the beginning. Scientists have tried to theorize about origins of the universe and all the creatures in it, of course. Many scientists do so while stubbornly rejecting everything that points to purposeful creation. But if we start with an expected conclusion in mind, everything we observe may be force-fit to support that conclusion. It's best to recognize that we do not know what we do not know and observe what we can observe. God made that evident to us immediately in the Genesis account. Genesis chapter 2, verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. And that's not some random lesson. God literally told us humans, one of the differences between me and you is you don't know everything. Nevertheless, God created us to rule over his creation and to be inquisitive and to be curious. He gave us science as a tool to use and not to abuse. Moses himself, with God's inspiration, demonstrated the scientific method in Genesis itself. Science is all about observations. And because there are so many things in the physical universe to observe, scientists have to categorize the observations to keep track of things. There are five very broad categories for organizing scientific observations. Time, force, action, space, and matter. This is very important, and we will tie this seemingly secular part of the message right back to the scripture. 
everything that exists and everything that happens in the observable universe can be categorized in one of those five very broad areas, time, force, action, space, matter. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Wow. In the beginning is not just any time. It is what I previously referred to as T equals zero. It is primary time. It is the most important time of the physical universe so far, and it is proof that the universe was created purposefully. I'll explain why existence of a physical universe beginning is so important for our faith in God in just a few more minutes. Meanwhile, in the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. God is not just some force. He is all force. He is omnipotent. He is prime mover of everything. Created is not just some action. It is the most meaningful, amazing, impossible, and vital action everywhere. It's ex nihilo, creation. It is making everything from nothing. The heavens aren't just some space. They're all space. And the earth is not just some matter. It's the matter that matters most to us because it's our home. Therefore, Genesis 1.1, written by Moses because he was divinely inspired by God himself, is the most perfect, the most complete, the most observably true scientific statement that has ever been made or ever could be made. God is creator, lawgiver, source, and provider. That's why it is so vital to understand that Genesis is true. And these facts that God is creator, lawgiver, source, and provider are also the stumbling blocks for so many so-called scientists. They don't want accountability to the lawgiver. So they try to pit science against faith and make bogus claims that those two things have to be incompatible. Don't fall for that. Again, science is observation. Observation reveals God's handiwork in his creation. And the only legitimate authority for moral right and wrong, whose law could possibly apply equally to all, is the creator, God. There is no inherent conflict between science and trusting God in all things. In fact, faith in God motivates great scientific discovery. Consider the modern practice of scientific observation itself. Back in pagan times, it was sacrilege to examine nature because Mother Nature was deified. But those with faith in the Creator God said, no, we are part of creation, just like the other parts of creation that we examine and we study and we observe. Or consider Copernicus and the discovery that the orbits of the planets in our solar system are elliptical. Time was, people believed that the Earth was the center and everything revolved around it. But then, observations revealed that the Sun was the center of this small part of the universe and we orbit around it. But even then, people believed that the orbits were circular. Now, that was logical, but it was wrong. Copernicus came along and studied the observations of the ways the planets orbit the Sun. And he calculated that the orbits were not perfectly circular. Copernicus started with his faith that God created the heavens and the earth and his knowledge that God is perfect. Therefore, Copernicus said, if the orbits are not perfect circles, they must be perfect something else. And so he postulated that they might be perfect ellipses. He took the observations, he did the math, and he made that important discovery. 
all because his faith in God as creator. But we are bombarded in modern times with demands that people must reject faith in God as creator because evolution somehow proves that we all originated without a creator being involved and making us. Now, evolution is change. Evolution has nothing to say about origins. But of course, Charles Darwin's famous book about evolution was not called On Change. It was called On the Origin of Species. Well, we'll get to Darwin and obliterate his nonsense with his own words in just a short while. But first, let's look at Einstein. I already mentioned that science worshipers reject God as creator because they reject God as lawgiver. People try to make evolution have something to say about origins so that they can ignore God's role as lawgiver. Evolutionists who try to extrapolate it to origins are deluded. To make those extrapolations, they require a very, very ancient universe. In fact, infinitely old would be best for their purposes. But currently they've landed on many billions of years, and something like 18.3 billion, I think, is their favorite new guess. It needs to be suitably long for any questions of what could occur over such time to be diffused. Basically, long enough that anything could happen. Einstein's general relativity once had a fudge factor to allow for an infinitely old universe. It was called the cosmological constant because giving unproven concepts fancy names diffuses contentions against them. But Einstein himself acknowledged that his inclusion of the possibility of an infinitely old universe was the worst mistake of his career. And when that was removed and the existence of a creation event at time t equals zero was acknowledged, then general relativity became a truly valuable theory. Extreme times are required for evolutionists because they recognize that no observations, that is, actual science, support their theory by which they extrapolate changes to try to account for origins. They say that no observations that illustrate changes between breeding groups are possible because evolution takes too long. Well, Darwin himself commented on his own theory of evolution regarding that point. Quote, the number of intermediate varieties which have formerly existed must be truly enormous. Why then is not every geological formation in every stratum full of such intermediate links? Geology assuredly does not reveal any such finely graduated organic chain. That's where we get the term missing links, by the way. The, the evidence that would bolster his theory was missing. It didn't exist, so they called it missing links. And this, perhaps, he says, is the most obvious and serious objection which can be urged against my theory. The explanation lies, as I believe, in the extreme imperfection of the geological record, unquote. So what he's saying is, I realize that my theory has no weight because it requires that there were transitions between the breeding groups for change to account for origins. And we have no observations to back that up. But the only reason we don't, he said, is we have an incomplete fossil record. Once you get a look at the fossil record, you're going to see that I was right all along. So he said. Well, in the meantime, we have dug through the several layers of strata, and we've made the observations of the fossil record. And when we see the fossil record shows no transitions, 
we should recognize that Darwin himself told us to reject his theory on that basis. Evolution, that is, changes within breeding groups, never results in changes into different breeding groups. Evolution, no matter how far it could be extrapolated, could never have anything to say about origins. In the beginning, God created everything that exists. But stubborn adherents to macroevolution have a cop-out for this. Remember, they told us we could never observe evolution because it takes too long. Now, given what actual scientific observations have revealed, they say evolution happens too quickly to observe. And that's why it left no record among the fossils. Now, remember I said we give fancy names to things to make them sound believable, even if they're ridiculous? Well, they have a fancy name for that laughable claim. Punctuated equilibrium. I kid you not. They give us this ridiculous nonsense, and they berate us for doubting it. They insist that we accept so-called science, even though they are not promoting actual science at all. Don't fall for their tricks. Observe, think, and understand your relationship with the Creator. And if you choose to rebut their claims, you may do so in several ways. Evolution is nonsensical when applied to changes between breeding groups. Darwin postulated that we would eventually observe transitional beings to support his theory, but in fact we've observed a complete lack of them. The fact that the fossil record itself even exists is an evidence of a much younger universe than evolutionists require. Think of this logically. Bones of various creatures are found buried in numerous layers of strata. Bones exposed to the elements and not buried would disintegrate rather quickly. Therefore, the depositing of the multiple layers of strata that cover single bones must necessarily have happened quickly, or else they would have eroded. But the evolutionists claim that each layer of strata only deposited over millennia so that they can say that the age of the Earth is, I think their current guesses are between 4.49 and 4.59 billion years old. Just take their word for it, they say. Simple observations about the fossils themselves show that's nonsense. Darwin also theorized about how changes within breeding groups, that's within breeding groups, which is actual microevolution, which does happen and is observable, would progress and would give rise to new, different breeding groups. That never happens. That's macroevolution, and that's garbage. He made note of mutations, which are observable changes, and thus are observable evolution. He speculated that mutations would either persist if they were beneficial or diminish if they were not beneficial. In brief, that's survival of the fittest. But mutations tend almost exclusively towards non-beneficial, so... The mechanism postulated for driving the vast variety that we find is itself positioned against doing any such thing. Furthermore, many of the features we find in ourselves and in other creatures could not possibly have originated from unguided chance or multiple mutations over generations. Such features we would describe as irreducibly complex. Consider our eyes. They're just one of numerous parts that perform functions we all have, but they and their function absolutely obliterate any claim of macroevolution. Darwin had people telling him this even in his day, when biochemistry wasn't robust. In his Origin of Species, he included a section called Organs of Extreme Perfection and Complication. He recognized that the formation of something like an eye in a single mutation 
would be effectively miraculous, supernatural. And he had to eliminate any possibility for supernatural involvement in our existence, because he didn't want to be accountable to the Creator and the Lawgiver. So he surmised that it took many, many, many generations of mutations to arrive at such features. But no such intermediate steps would have been beneficial. And so, according to his own theory, all such mutations, as Darwin would require, would fail his survival of the fittest requirement. Now, I won't detail all of the eye's function, but here's about one one-hundredth of how complicated our eye's function is. This comes from biochemist Michael Bay. Not the director. When light first strikes the retina, a photon interacts with a molecule called 11 cisretinal, which rearranges within picoseconds to transretinal. The change in shape of the retinal molecule forces a change in shape of the protein called rhodopsin, which is tightly bound to the retinal. The protein's metamorphosis alters its behavior. Now called metarhodopsin 2, this protein sticks to another protein called transducin, and before bumping into the metarhodopsin 2, the transducin had tightly bound a small molecule called GDP, but when the transducin interacted with the metarhodopsin 2, the GDP falls off and a molecule called GTP binds to transducin. Then there's a cutting of a cell, there's other intercell reactions, there's manipulations of other proteins, so on, so on, so on, so on, about 100 times more than what I just described, all for a microsecond's worth of one function of one part of one being. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's the truth. Now, if defending the truth against these science worshipers is daunting because of the fancy words, there are simpler ways. You could simply invite the one who is demanding you to respect the science to observe a skywriter sometime. The words they put in the sky look vaguely like clouds. But if you ever see a cloud that says, drink Coca-Cola, for example, you're looking for the skywriter because you know that nature never, never, never creates patterns complex enough to carry information. Not even simple information like drink Coca-Cola. Then invite the scientists to consider what we now have observed about every cell and every living being in creation. The DNA in the cells contain a library of Congress worth of information, instructions, and they are very detailed, very complex, and very specific. And if they're not exactly right, the creature dies. Therefore, every logical observer, that would be a real scientist, knows that natural processes alone did not cause the existence of any living being ever. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, as I wrap this up, I want to return to the key point that I've hinted at a few times so far. The reason that so many people demand that we reject Genesis 1-1 is that they really want us to reject things like Leviticus and the Gospels and Acts and the Epistles and so on. Everyone who honestly thinks surely knows and understands that if God created us and everything in the universe, then God is the singular authority in the universe, and he is. We are accountable to him. We are accountable to obey God. I recently had an opportunity to speak with Dr. Don Devine, who worked for President Reagan in the 1980s. Now, he's an expert on economics, but he's also just a profound thinker. And he had this observation he shared with me about the nature of God. God values freedom so much that he gave the people he created the freedom to disobey him. Isn't that profound? I hadn't considered it quite like he presented it. The creator, God, is necessarily also the lawgiver. 
true equality can only be found in that. We are all accountable to God for our actions, particularly if we choose to disobey Him. I mentioned Leviticus, which contains much of what's called the Mosaic Law. But of course, even though Moses put the words on the parchment, he wasn't the actual author, just as he wasn't the actual author of Genesis. If you want proof that Scripture is God-breathed, Genesis contains that proof too. Moses steps us through, in scientific method, the order of how God created things. One, separating light from darkness. Two, creating a water-covered earth. Three, separating dry land from seas. Four, making the vegetation. Five, making the seed-bearing plants. Six, making the fruit-bearing trees. Seven, placing heavenly bodies in the sky. Eight, making the water-based creatures. Nine, making the birds. Ten, making the livestock. Eleven, making the ground-crawling creatures. And twelve, making the humans. Now Moses had no fossil record to observe, but he nailed the now observable order of the arrival of the various creatures. He nailed the entire sequence. The odds of Moses nailing that entire sequence in Genesis chapter 1 are one chance in 479,001,600 chances. Moses wasn't lucky. He had help. The one who created everything told Moses what to write. And so it was with the law. Moses didn't make the Mosaic law. The Creator did. And who does that mean actually wrote Leviticus? Let's go back to John chapter 1. In beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in beginning. Through Him all things were made, and without Him nothing was made that has ever been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. That means Jesus wrote Leviticus. Have you ever heard somebody say, oh, Jesus never spoke about this particular sin or that particular sin. So all you people that are saying that's still a sin, you need to hush because Jesus didn't talk about that. Well, they say that to silence you from pointing out that certain actions are forbidden by God. But they're wrong, and you should never fall for their tricks. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So the point of this entire lesson is that God is creator, God is lawgiver, and we are all accountable to him for our actions. We will fail to perfectly abide by his law. We are sinful. We are short of the true glory of God. But we can still choose to be in right relationship with him forever. Jesus is the one and only way for us to do that. Choose wisely. Core Principles Podcast is produced in Paducah, Kentucky by Real Productions. Music is by Late July. L-E-I-G-H-T July. You can find our music on all streaming services or at latejuly.com. Thank you for joining us today for this episode of the Core Principles Podcast. Please visit core.buzzsprout.com for more information. And please share with your friends. We look forward to visiting with you again on our next episode.